Welcome to the 12 Days of Edition Wars, featuring 2nd Edition AD&D Players and DMs option books. In this marathon series, we are taking a close look at a set of special books that are often considered D&D 2.5. On the ninth day of Edition Wars, my DM gave to me nine ladies dancing. Yeah, right. Or Spells and Magic Part 3. One of those, definitely. Perhaps they were dancing around a fireball. Uh, that that could happen. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Or dancing oh. around after they got hit with a fireball. Or it's or would that would that be dancing? Or maybe it's Otto's fault. Ah. I think it's Otto's fault. Could be. Yes. So I'm excited about this chapter. I tell you what, um, it is easily in my top two favorite chapters in this book, um, and. Okay, the the competition isn't that fierce for most of the rest of the spots, but but top two, um, because I really do like the alternate casting styles, even if they're sort of incredibly punishing and messy. Um, they're just interesting. Uh, but this this is the thing I always want out of playing an arcane caster is some spell research and some magic item creation. I am so here for it. Um, now. Now let I, me let me let me let me ask you a question. So you are a, a, a big fan of Ars Magica, right? I uh, so so I I am a I am a complicated kind of fan. I own books from three different editions. Um, I have a a fairly decent um, like number of uh, fifth edition Ars Magica texts. And I have never played Ars Magica at all or run it, uh, despite best efforts. Um, one of my resolutions for 2019 was to schedule and run Ars Magica. And the one time we actually had people together and thought it was going to run, that got canceled at the last minute. You've, and you've got seven days. No reschedule occurred. You've got you've got seven days. <laughs> <laughs> that's adorable <laughs> you can play with your kids they might not have any idea what's going on but <laughs> I can play with the grown ups they might not have any idea what's going on that's Sam. true that's true very true um, okay like, the, the appeal of Ars Magica is the density of the text but anyway yeah. so well I guess the reason I was asking is because I, I knew I, I know that you're a, a fan of, of Ars Magica so what I was thinking was is that why you enjoy this chapter so much? Because that sort of fiddling with spells and trying to create spells to be something new and different and awesome and something of your own signature is what appeals to you the most about this particular item. Uh, so I don't like this because I like Ars Magica. I like this and I like Ars Magica for the same reason. Right. That's yeah. That's that's kind of what I. Yeah. yeah that's what I was getting. Um, at. So I'm just not. I didn't. Expect so it very well. like I I'm I am one of the people who really really likes uh, wizards in fiction of most kinds. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty much. Uh, it, it, and really, I'd call it a straight line from uh, Merlin through uh, Gandalf and Sparrowhawk and. Um, the various uh, wizards of, of Vance, but especially Turgeon of Mir. Okay. Um, okay. And uh, then all the way through 
most of the metagnostic in Sepulchre's Tales of Wire and so on, the, the more scholarly and um, obscure and weird the the wizard, the more I'm into it, right? Um, okay, well, wait. Now, that brings up another question. I'm totally getting off on a tangent. We haven't even talked about the book chapter. But let me ask you this. So do high magic worlds just turn you off? Because the way that I conceive of the sort of the wizard is the weird – the weird person that wields this odd power and has to spend decades studying to to perfect their their art, so to speak. That doesn't really fit in my mind in a world that has a, a lot of high magic, a lot a lot of people that can wield that same power without putting so much effort in. Uh, so a, a smaller number of very high powered casters is more interesting to me, not because of exclusivity, qua exclusivity, Mm -hmm. but because there are a small enough number that you could meet most of them and they can become people you engage with and interact with meaningfully. Um, Okay. That's a, a huge part of the whole flavor of Vance's dying earth. Um, there's a sense that we hear about most of the wizards that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's there's such a thing in in the stories about uh, questing to meet Pendulum, who is this one wizard whose portfolio includes most or all of the spells that still exist, right. and it's a big thing. Um, and you know, there isn't any one of these works that is to me the perfect one. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in fairness, Earthsea comes closest, um, which is why I was such a deep, deep fan of uh, the Unearthed Arcana Onomancy mm-hmm. uh, from several weeks ago. Um, and why my heart was so broken when that did not uh, get the enthusiastic <laughs> response from the rest of the user right. base that it got from, you know, my heart of hearts. <laughs> um, so, so, so it isn't even that I'm in love with the spell research system in this book specifically, right? Um, it's just having one that a player can engage with is a big part of the fun to me. And, uh, you know, in principle, I want magic to feel mysterious. Um, that is a very difficult goal in D and D because, uh, making the magic feel, um, mysterious and out of reach is, kind of undermined by the spells being balanced for their spell level and all written down in essentially player-facing books. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, And so uh, part of the the DM's work, I think, is to uh, 
inject more narrative into the spells than they natively possess and bring back a sense of mystery and the unexpected to them. And that's hard because to the player, it's one action out of maybe five or 10 in the course of a combat. And it's an action they're going to perform fairly often. Um, It would be like trying to inject mystery into um, a battle master's maneuver. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, right. Good work if you can get it, but hard to do well. Yeah. Okay. Um, That's fair. I think. I think. I think what you're saying is fair. I'm just. I, I'm. I tend toward uh, the idea. Maybe I should say the ideal for me is a world in which not a lot of casters exist. Because it makes it it makes them more mysterious and more dangerous and and more fantastical. Um, but 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 in in play, that's that's hard to do, right? It's hard to oh sure to say well that magic exists, but oh most people don't don't even know how to use it or have no experience with it. That's that's not as fun at the table actually, unless it's something like Dark Sun where the whole world is set up around that sort of there's an issue with magic, you know, destroying living things. I think if you had um, sort of the demographics fall off by, uh, you know, powers of 10 or powers of a hundred at each tier increase um, for each of the four tiers in that we talk about in Mm -hmm. um, fifth edition D and D you'd get pretty close. Right. So, uh, Wizards of, uh, you know, seventeenth level and above. I mean, there are some, sorta, mm-hmm. um, but very, very few. Maybe we're talking about uh, one or two per tradition. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but a big part of what drives this book. Um, Spells and magic. Remember spells and magic. We're here to talk about spells and magic. <laughs> yes. Sorry for the sorry for the digression. I'm just. You never need to apologize. I, I, like this is a topic I care about a lot. I, I guess the reason uh, I, the reason that looking at this chapter makes me think of it because this is so nitty gritty. With here's mm-hmm. how you can create a new spell. Right, and and like I say, it's not that I'm in, in love with these rules that are on the page. Mm-hmm. It's that um, this is attacking goals that I care about attacking. Right. Um, and that I, I really want to see D&D keep trying in maybe more, uh, more creative ways to, to, to approach. Um, so, so talk to me about this chapter. So right. So so about this chapter. <laughs> so right. Um, they're really talking about. Um, so it says player characters can research four types of spells, existing spells that they haven't gotten through some other means, uh, clones of existing spells for when you've already failed your learn roll mm-hmm. on a spell, but you want another shot at it, right? Right. Uh, so. Maybe you blew your spell learning roll on Fireball because it's second ed and that's a thing that could happen. Mm-hmm. So you learn 
exploding flames ball. Right. Sure. Why not? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And maybe you just want to get rid of the uh, incredibly punishing backdraft feature. Right. Feature. <laughs> feature. Of <laughs> second ed fireballs. Uh, and who could blame you, really? Right. Um, that kind of thing. Um, and then um, spells that would exceed the normal maximum number of spells allowed by a character's intelligence score. Again, this is second ed. That's a thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and completely new spells never before seen in the campaign. So uh, actually expanding the, the art in a, in a meaningful right. way. Um, and so uh, th- it has rules for each of those things. Um, existing spells, extra spells, and new spells. Um, and it's going to walk us through each of those, and the numbers here are going to be very, very fiddly. Lots of, you know, uh, plus ones to uh, maybe it's one extra percentage point to succeed because you have your you have this base success chance formula that is just here to tell you how bad it is on your odds, right? right. So you have a base 10% chance plus 1% per point of relevant ability score. So intelligence for wizards, like this is a place where second ed really starts to treat an 18 intelligence as uh, Mm -hmm. just, you know, cost of entry. Right. Um, So if you you have an 18 intelligence, now you're up to 28%. Yeah, plus one percent per experience level. So let's say you're your tenth right. level. So now you're so at thirty-eight. That's thirty-eight uh, percent minus uh, two percentage points per spell level. So that that thirty-eight uh, percent starts dropping off pretty fast. But uh, at tenth level, you could research up to a fifth level spell. So you're back down to a twenty-eight percent mm-hmm. shot. Um. And if the character does not succeed in his first attempt, uh, he may continue his research. At the end of each additional week, he may attempt to check with a plus 10% cumulative bonus. However, if the character ever rolls a result of 99 or 100 on his success check, the DM may rule the spell proves unworkable and must be abandoned. Right. And just to point out, the base time is two weeks per spell level. So if we're talking about a fifth level right. spell, that's the first check is after 10 weeks of research. And then if it fails every additional week, you add the 10%. So by the time you yeah. failed once and then you add 10%, you're now on week 11 and then you're on week 12 and then you're on week 13 and you still only have a 48 or 58% chance. Right. Right. But, um, I mean, the fact of the matter is, even if it stayed steady at 28%, mm-hmm. just getting to roll again, um, the way odds work, that starts to tilt sure. in your favor fairly sure. rapidly. Eventually, you're going to, uh, to pass it or succeed. Um, also, there's a gold so, point cost, right? A gold piece cost, right? There's a basic cost. Oh, 100 for sure. 1, a basic cost of research. Yeah. Yep. Per level. Yep. So, and, and and that's all to the good. Right. I, uh, when you get right down to it, like the the numbers that are cited here are fairly reasonable if you are operating on a base of um, the other characters are have also shifted into domain management mm-hmm. play, right. right? Right. So of course the the 
fighter or the paladin want to go, you know, manage their whole, their, their, their fiefdom, mm-hmm. um, their barony or whatever for uh, three months. Right. right. Well, that gives you 12 weeks to mm-hmm. play with. Right. So sure. That's fine. Sure. Um, that's very much as intended. And I have seen, um, I've seen D and D clones, uh, you know, retro clones that, uh, really engage with that a lot more mm-hmm. but um oh the the idea in older editions uh that every time you gain a level you have to go find a mentor to teach you the new things that you learned it is that's that's way back in the dna of the game we just sort of ignore that sure. nowadays right uh we've right it, it still know. appears as an optional rule sure. i believe but it started being optional pretty really early, early on. on yeah even when it was actually technically a rule in first edition people were hand waving it right it sure. wasn't you know it, I, I think it was meant to be uh where you actually are now you know you're going to go on a quest to try to find that 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 mentor person who's going to help you learn that thing right and that's fine until we start talking about how experience points gained on that quest might be um you know, bled into the aether because you are at a right. point where you aren't allowed to gain XP right. anymore. That's right. Yes. Uh, how much right. of a jerk is your DM right. on a scale right. of one to that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and on the other hand, uh, that adventure, if it's just a one-on-one, you know, if you're just working with your DM sort of on the non, non game days, you know, and you're making yeah, sure that, fine. you know, then that's, that's sort of the offhand play. That sort of downtime, actual downtime play, that can be very fun and fulfilling, and so you wouldn't necessarily need XP for it because what sure. you're doing is earning that new thing that you can do. Right. It also depends on how prepared your GM is to run um, a, a good non-combat quest, sure. because yeah, uh, yeah, sing- single character, multi-opponent combat is um, incredibly dangerous in any edition of D&D. <laughs> yeah, right. Inadvisable. Right. Yes. Yes. Uh, anyway, so, uh, you know, there, so in other words, it's not like everybody's going to be sitting around while your wizard is at the table doing this. Everybody else has stuff to do as well. Right. And, you know, one of the things about uh, domain play is that so much of that does occur um either sort of taking up a lot of time at the table or well, much better handled uh, away from the game, uh, presumably when this came out over the phone, because what's an email address? <laughs> right, um, right. Or, or now over email or uh, right. some sort of Slack channel, God bless you. <laughs> um, but, you know, the the bookkeeping that goes into that can really explode. Um, a friend of mine who ran the the Pathfinder Kingmaker uh, adventure path mm-hmm. showed me his Excel spreadsheet oh, by the time they were done. Yeah. And when I finished skeeting blood from my eyes, <laughs> I had to uh, turn off the computer really fast to stop skeeting blood from my <laughs> eyes because, oh my God. Yeah. Like, I, I have worked with Excel spreadsheets professionally, and that one was daunting. <laughs> Yeah, it was a lot. Yeah. Um. So right. Um. 
after we talk about spell research, we get into magic item creation and all the different you know kinds of magic items you can make. And you know, this is um, this is kind of just a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, first, it's potions and scrolls. There's a discussion of special ingredients, and I mean, the issue with special ingredients is that you're you're kind of going on a quest to gain the right to you know sign your name in the in the corner of the item stats mm-hmm. rather than I don't know like it's the difference between do we go on a quest for an item or go on a quest to get a piece of an item well, well a piece of a quest to get a piece a, of an item isn't really right, better but well but also it's not it's a piece of an item and then is there a chance of failure while you're crafting the item <laughs> right. right so so you might not right. even get a piece of the item you're getting a piece of the recipe for the item Right, and, and that's why I really resist um, magic item creation as a source of quests, mm-hmm. and especially if you're talking about a, a consumable item like a potion or a scroll. I mean, yeah. come on, this is a nightmare. <laughs> We're going on a quest in which we need to expend a potion or a spell or a spell scroll in order to make what now? A potion or a? Yeah. Hmm, this doesn't seem to be. Um, good um and at the same time you know making potions or spell scrolls is a meaningful part of the supporting fiction for wizards so it should be a thing i the the Um, more interesting piece that i find in this section actually i mean you know crafting rules crafting rules whatever like i you know Okay, fine. Uh, some some people find them necessary. Some people have them. Uh, they're a really enjoyable element for them. Whatever. I'm I'm sort of uh, neutral on them. Um, but what I find interesting is there's a section here entitled "Items That No Player Character Should Create." And I mean, they're they're basically not wrong. No, they're not. Um, uh, it says the first item that no player character should be able to create is actually an entire category of items, magical books, books, tomes, librams, manuals, and other such items provide the character with the ability to build himself an instant level gain. Because remember in this edition, this was where you had, you know, the manual of athletics and it would give you a plus one strength and the manual of all known facts and it would give you a, a plus one intelligence and the manual of infinite wisdom would give you, a plus, you know, um, that's what it's saying you should not be able to create because if you allowed player characters to create those things, they could take a couple of years off of adventuring and create a bunch of those and end up with all of their stats way up in the 19s and 20s and 22s and that's bad for the game is the idea sure that's it's relatively true at least um i mean looking at it from a perspective of uh third ed item creation it is maybe a little less uh unbearable than that would imply but um it, it all depends on how you cost them and so on. Yeah. The the next the next couple of things that it says that that you should not be able to create are uh uh the deck of many things and the sphere of annihilation. That seems fair. 
I think I, I think it is it is fair. <laughs> I think it's fair. That seems fair. Uh, I mean, not that I don't love watching campaigns implode through their uh, intersection with a deck of many things, mm-hmm. but <laughs> maybe the wizard shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. Um, and then and then there's one last cat. There's one last thing uh, in in this section, and it is special racial magic such as a cloak of elvenkind or boots of elvenkind unless the character is a member of the race in question they should not be able to create those items which is an interesting uh i don't really know what to say about it <laughs> uh, well so so it's one of those things that you know it, it's fine if you want to make um if you want to say, well, the lore around this item says that only elves can make it, mm-hmm. that's intrinsic. But could I make something that clones all its features but has you know, different assigned lore? Right, right. Well, yes. Well, see, and that's why, that's why I say like it, it's an interesting – it's interesting to even mention it, right? Like that's, yeah. that's why I say that because – the actual elements of, say, Boots of Elvenkind really don't actually have anything to do with them being elves. I mean, you know, ultimately, mechanically speaking, it doesn't matter that they're elves making it. Right. So, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's just it's one of those things, right? Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. But it's, I just um, found it interesting that they call out specific, like, you know, it's basically a, hey, look, here's some rules for creating things. You can create whatever you want, whatever you want. Oh, except actually, you can't just create anything you can think of, and you can't just create your own artifacts uh, that might be too weird or too powerful or violate some sort of uh, racial creation rule set. I mean, those are not unfair things to. No, no, I, I don't. I don't think the they. Yeah, yeah. No, and like, I don't mean it that I think it's unfair. I just think it's interesting that no. they actually put it right out. Here's some limits to this. We're giving you these rules, but there's some limits. You can make anything. Well, almost close enough. Right. Yeah. I mean, exactly. I've got yeah. the second ed yeah. uh, so. Encyclopedia Magica. Um, this whole list of items uh, is not one percent of everything in those in that four volume set of magic items. Right. Yeah, I mean, and but you know, but it talks about these things as categories, right? So you would assume that it's more than just these four items. It's the category. Uh, that, that's true, but those they did list most of the items that even fit in those categories. Um, yeah. So yeah, I suppose. So it it does go through a lot of the different types of magic items that there are to talk about components that might be used in those things, and those are also and in, in spells you might need in order to do those things. Um, what we're very much looking toward here is the uh, the caster level and spellcasting requirements that go into third edition uh, magic item creation. Um, but third ed, you know, didn't really have a lot of uh, truck with 
we have to have this one special item that isn't a magic item in itself, but it's the component you need. I mean, that that just wasn't how they rolled. Yeah, this this chapter uh, also gives that um, gives credence to that idea that you and I both stated, which is this is proto three e. That when when wizards took over TSR's holdings, and they were going to you know improve upon and make a third edition, they looked at all of these books. And this is one particular place where they added this sort of aspect to the system in the core books. And so that brings us to the end of Chapter 7 pretty well. I think we've covered it about as well as it calls for. Um, sure, sure. I, I'm not sure go, going into any more minutia of it is, is instructive. So uh, Chapter 8 is Spells in Combat, which is very much about so, did you like combat and tactics? Sweet. So here's how you do spellcasting, <laughs> but in combat and tactics. And right. it's going to right. drill down to some of the same incredibly obsessive levels of detail and give spells some mm-hmm. of the same kinds of uh, properties that they explored with uh, with weapons in combat and tactics, such as the knockdown dice. Right, right. But at the beginning, it ta- at the with, I like the beginning of this chapter because it talks about two things that are interesting to me, and that is the rules for subtly casting, um, and then also the sensory signatures of spells. So, does it make a sound? Does it have a visual aspect? Does it you know do those sorts of things? And then it kind of goes through the um, the schools of magic, and it talks about you know what what types of sensory signatures you might have in those uh which i find i find interesting because i'm a sensory biologist so you know i that that sort of thing speaks to my soul and i think oh that's a really interesting thing and that's something that you know it's only like two and a half pages or one and a half pages or whatever and that's something that players could read and they could use that to help them sort of narrate casting a spell rather than just oh i cast you know hold person right you you actually could say well here's what that looks like sure you know um here's what that sounds like here's what it smells like or whatever you know right and it's not like they're going to go through every spell in uh gory detail right tell you exactly what it uh what it feels like sounds like smells like sure Uh, and and so on and that's fine Right. But but they uh, but they might have you know a particular character might have a signature spell that they love to cast right and that could end up taking on some of these properties and they could make it even more personalized as they grow in level so anyway yeah that that kind of stuff I really like that kind of stuff so it's fair um, I mean I think that the the spell subtlety modifiers table is going a bit far. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's why I said that non-mechanically speaking. So, so now page one twenty is another of the really strong arguments for proto third. So you have armor breaching spells, what third calls touch attacks, and armor observing spells, you know, attacks against AC, and and that's interesting to see. Um, 
because I, I feel like it's the first time we've ever had any kind of conversation about that. Yeah, there's like a one to one when you when you look at these spells, there's like a one to one equivalency with what you just said with the the touch tax versus AC. Huh. I mean, that that's what they're trying to say, and the whole touch AC thing is just putting this into uh, maybe some more consistent uh, human language than armor breaching or armor observing spells. Right. Yeah, those um, terms are weird, but right. And and we get some more content on how to fit this in with combat and tactics. Uh, like I said, knockdowns, spells and knockdown dice, um, and spells with knockdown effects. So it's a whole thing. Um, and and frankly, this is going to go on for several pages. Right. Um, Collateral effects of fire and <laughs> what happens in the environment when you cast a lightning spell. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Once again, these things are things that, that speak to me. Uh, as you know, a science geek. Um, but when you start getting into the nitty gritty, you know, the mechanics of it. Well, I, do I care that um, the environmental effect is severe irritation, which causes a negative two penalty to AC? Like that, it's not the it's not the minutia of the rule mechanic that I care about. It's the idea of improving the narrative for myself and making spells different in other than just name and damage type, right? For sure, like. Taking a lightning bolt and adding on a dazzle effect, so it now has another saving throw required to avoid a minus one penalty uh, to attack rolls for one d three rounds. No, just no. Like once there's a computer resolving everything, then we can talk about this. But until that, no. Um, and uh, right, and so so we like the collateral effects are, as you say, interesting, but attaching mechanics to all of them is mostly regrettable. Sure, um, I I agree with that. Then we get into we get into critical strikes, and I mean, how many pages do they spend talking about creating oh, with God. spells? I mean. Uh... <sighs> It's is it literally six, the rest of the chapter? Seven. It is seven, and then and then okay. like five or six it's, pages of tables, right? It's literally the rest of the chapter. Yeah, but it's like seven, yeah. six or seven pages of text, and then ten uh-huh. pages of tables. <laughs> um, so I don't have a single thing I want to say about this, except that it is excessive and uh, completely unusable at the table. Right, but that's exactly because, the same thing we said about Lord the tables in combat and tactics, right? Sure, I mean, but those didn't have whole body injuries as a whole separate table. Yeah, yeah. But I just mean in terms of the minutia of, you know, each of these tables do, figuring out the impact and the severity and the location and the like yeah, and all of that. And some of them are are really gory. Remember we talked about how gory it was, you know, talking about, you know, pulling the tail off of the 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 lizard creature you know and you know in in more graphic detail than what i just said and that's the same thing it does here yep and it does it for every energy type that the game acknowledges right 
And it's kind of interesting to remember which damage types weren't a thing in second ed because boy, were they going to be from there on out. Um, Third ed was going to give us uh, positive energy and negative energy, which become today's radiant and necrotic. And uh, that is not meaningfully a thing. Uh, Wounding is as close as you really get. And here in second ed, it's called vibration damage, which is definitely worse than calling it sonic damage. (laughs) And we can all be glad it's finally become thunder damage. (laughs) Yeah. Well, even, even just, even, even just force damage, which was impact damage. That's the type, Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, but, but, you know, remember this was sort of the, this is the groundwork, right? This is the foundation. This is the, hey, let's let's put all this together and make it reasonable for D&D. And we're kind of going to make this these words up as we go. And if they sound odd and mysterious and weird, well, that's sort of within the milieu of D&D. So we're going to go with that. Sure, that's fair. Um, and then we get to the appendix. And so, so, so right, uh, the 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 rest of the book uh, is three appendices. The first appendix is wizard spells, uh, organized by level, in the now quite strange to me way that second ed second ed arranged its spells. Uh, followed by appendix two, priest spells, same, um, and the very strange grammatical decision that it would be called. New priests, that's plural of priest, not possessive of priest, plural, spells. I don't know what, someone was sleeping switch that day, I don't know. Uh, And then finally, Appendix 3, which is uh, wizard spells by school. Um, And Appendix 4, priest spells by by sphere. You know, the spell lists, it's fine. Um. And so, especially in on the wizard side, this is where a lot of the like workhorses of third ed spellcasting come from. Um, I think this is the first place that Expeditious Retreat. Sh- well, no, that's not true. I know for sure Expeditious Retreat was in mm-hmm. Pages of the Mages. I, I it's I, I'm not looking it up right now, but I. I would put five <laughs> bucks on that. Um, but you've got things like uh, Cat's Grace, um, Protection from Poison, um, you know, Displace Self, which we came to call uh, you know, either mm-hmm. Blur or Displacement. Um, some very odd spells that uh, are at least worth re-examining to see if they <laughs> belong in your game. Um, uh, protection from amorphs. It, it is like protection from vermin or protection from evil, but instead it's protection from oozes. <laughs> right. That's the deal. Um, and some of these, uh, because I'm in a, in a playthrough of Planescape Torment right now, which is 
you know, mm-hmm. built on a second edition chassis. I am recognizing from that um, improved strength is, I believe, a spell that shows up under various names in uh, in Playscape Torment. Um, you know, Ultra Vision uh, because Dark Vision, but more. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, Mordenkainen's Force Missiles is absolutely a spell that I have in Planescape Torment. It just lost its Mordenkainen's bit. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, uh, it's nice to see Tensor doing a little more work in this book. Um, he has Destructive Resonance. Uh, and Leoman gets a little more love. With uh, his Lodge. With, with his Hidden Lodge. Yeah. Uh, why be satisfied with the Tiny Hut? You know, eventually you've got to challenge Mordenkainen for his mansion, his magnificent mansion. <laughs> right. Uh, Dimensional Blade is probably probably holding steady for my number one favorite spell in in this book, uh, just for being a thing. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Um, Heart of Stone is a good competitor, though. It's a, it's a strong competition. Yeah. Uh, because this potent spell exchanges the necromancer's own living heart for a finely crafted heart of perfect, unblemished stone. Yeah. Nice. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, and here's uh, one for you. Yeah. The Sphere of Ultimate Destruction. Right? We can't let you make a Sphere of Annihilation. This but we can right well that's what that's what i was going to say that's what i was going to say this one is short lived sure. that's why you can do it you can't get in quite as much trouble with this one <laughs> but this is absolutely a spell that can kill you once conjured the sphere of ultimate destruction may not move exactly as the caster wishes oh, oh no <laughs> Right, <laughs> um, but but then we get into some of the priest spells, and they're doing some things that we mostly don't bother to do. Um, I mean, having a spell to dispel fatigue is cool, but you have to keep in mind that this is counting on you to need that a lot more because of the unbelievably punitive fatigue rules of uh, combat and tactics. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Right. But I'll tell you what, if my fifth edition players had a dispel exhaustion or decrease exhaustion spell, they would be casting that freaking thing all the time. You mean other than greater restoration? Well, sure. Yeah. I mean a lower lower level spell that they had easy access to. Yes. Right? And that's exactly why we can't have nice things. Right. Exactly. But I'm just saying. Right. Yeah, I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Orison notably is uh, going to become the priestly word for cantrip mm-hmm. in uh, third ed. Uh, right. But it's a, a spell on its own here. And then thrown out later. <laughs> right. Well, right. that's fine. Um, <laughs> uh, Strength of stone is, you know, another variation on um, what I call the beast buffs, right? Mm-hmm. Your, your bull strength and so on. Right. Right. Um, but it, it here exists alongside strength and improved strength. It's just doing its own thing. Um, so one of the things is that I'm really interested in here 
is that I had not realized second ed priest casting leaned into astral content this way. Really? You didn't? Uh, like, there's several several spells that reference the astral, even at a very low level. I'm not talking about you know, astral projection. I'm talking about astral celerity and astral awareness. And that's interesting to me because it's such a big deal in fourth ed cleric theme. Right. Because second ed was so invested in its own canon, right? It's interesting to to see that there is something going on with clerics in the astral that um, you know isn't about astral projection as such. Um, it still it still sounds okay to me, despite despite the fact that the astral plane actually doesn't really have anything to do with gods. Oh yeah, and the point of this isn't that I object to it; it's that it's interesting uh, because. Uh, I do think it's interesting in fourth, and it's it's interesting to see it referenced here. Um, though, like uh, astral celerity is literally about moving faster in the astral, uh, while very few first level priests find themselves in this situation, <laughs> that's accurate. Yes, <laughs> I would hope so. <laughs> that's because if as soon as they find themselves in that situation, they die. And so, so astral awareness is about letting you see into see astral creatures while you're on prime. So that's pretty cool. Anyway, um oh etherealness shows up here at, at third level. That's wow. This spell resembles the fifth level wizard spell etherealness in many respects. But you had two different spells of the same name mm. but with different effects. Um design tip everybody. <laughs> yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> same name, same effect. Same name, yep. same effect. Mercy, but uh, cure moderate wounds shows up here. One of I think it's one of its first appearances, just as a we skipped a step. We want to give you a good way to spend second level slots on healing. Mm, not bad. Yeah. Okay. Um, you've got hold poison, which is going to get changed to delay poison, I think, and. Uh, for the most part, the spells here aren't going to uh, show up again, though uh, uh, Righteous Wrath of the Faithful sounds like Righteous Might. It just happens to have nothing to do with it in real effect. It does not, in fact, uh, make you get swole and beat things to death with a hammer, <laughs> um, which is a shame because that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, I might come back to this sometime to see if there's more stuff I want to try to adapt to 5th edition, because there's some interesting ideas here. Uh, Other Time is maybe one of the most striking. Uh, it's a little bit time-stoppy, but... Um, oh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's bad for you. Oh, dear. <laughs> that uh, leaping in and out of the time stream is a dangerous activity uh, paragraph is... Um, it's, a, it, it's a worry. Ah, yes. Huh. You could become stuck. Yep. This spell could take your character away from you forever. Wow. So, anyway, my, my feeling is I have said what I came to say about spells and magic. I think that um, there's some interesting art in this section. Uh, yeah, there, there's some very striking art. Yeah, a lot of it has nothing to do with actually the spells that are listed. 
Um, that is accurate. Uh, but but the art is is interesting. The the dragon fight on page one seventy nine is yeah pretty awesome. Um, I like the ship dock uh, picture myself. Yeah, the the animated hand of water that is choking out the, the minotaur, minotaur. Yeah, <laughs> is like the, the the style of the caster is a little what no. Yeah, but uh, the rest of the art's pretty cool. Yeah, there was there was one I wanted to find in here that was oh well uh, on one fifty five the 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 robed caster fighting the giant scorpion is just real weird. Is real weird. I like. Yeah, that. he's got like uh, planets around his head. It's pretty cool, right? Um, I I was one, and he's and he's casting some at the scorpion, right? Like I. I, I was wondering what it was meant to be um, showing. Yeah, I'm not really sure. Um, I, I feel like there's a bunch of Forgotten Realm-specific spells that that could be referencing. I can't come up with the names right now, but I feel like that could be a reference to some of those. Um, yeah, it could be. I, I don't know the FR-specific stuff at all. So we talked about one of the about some of the incredibly weird art earlier in this book, and page 111. Really, I have no idea what's going on here, but it is wild. Her story is pretty clear, but the other one, what is happening right now? Yeah, the the the, the creatures. Yeah, what's happening? You know what that reminds me of? Uh, Mad Max reminds me of Thunderdome. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. It, it, it does have some Mad Max um, going on. Very odd. Anyway, um, I, I think that once we're commenting on art, you know, I don't. I don't have. I don't. I don't have a lot to say about the spells. I mean, I. I you know, it, it, it's to me the the appendices with the spells. That's just typical stuff, right? Like there are some interesting things in there. There's some sort of shrug my shoulders things, and you know, um, that's that's sort of all I have to say about it. Uh, nothing in there was particularly surprising, one way yeah. or the other. So yeah, I think I think we're in a pretty good place talking about this book. Yeah, I think so. So so now that we finished the three players options, which one's your favorite? Oh, spells and magic by a mile. Okay, which one do you think is the most useful? Most useful? Okay. To players. That that's yes. a complicated question. If you're going to accept the book's premises and accept some of their very questionable decisions, then it's got to be skills and powers because Combat and tactics bring so little to the table that I actually want to see at the table. It's so dense with table references and different things you got to do to bring it to the table. At least with skills and powers, most of the radical complexity is resolved away from a session during character creation. Mm-hmm. So, so it gets some points for usability on that level. Um, and so Spell of Magic is kind of tapping on that same element because the first couple of chapters of spells and magic are just skills and powers redux right 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 the the wizard chapter the priest chapter and the skill chapter are very familiar um so so i'm gonna give useful at the table uh skills and powers wins by a nose over spells and magic um if you make it into domain level play uh then spells and magic takes the lead again, but it doesn't matter because that's when the DM's option high level campaigns book uh, sort of shows up. Uh, Johnny come lately and says, "Aren't you adorable?" Um, and I 
I, I don't know. I I'm having a hard time finding much use for combat and tactics that isn't um, on the dustbin of history. I, I feel terrible for saying that because there's an outside chance that someone who created it will listen to this someday, and it's not it's not their fault. Right. Um, it was a design path that had to be explored for a little while to see if it worked, and parts of it did, and they were simplified back down when they were brought into third ed. And then those get simplified more when they're brought into fourth and fifth. Yeah. I mean, I think the majority of the book was written by Rich Baker, wasn't it? Definitely plausible that uh, he could hear this and, you know, that would make me sad because I adore his work. And uh, this book is just not an example of what I adore about his work. (laughs) I mean, you know, as we said, and, you know, we're doing it from a place of respect and looking back. Hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? And that brings us to the end of the discussion of spells and magic. And so this is the third volume that we have covered now in their entirety. And next episode, we are going to talk about the DM's option high-level campaign book. We really, really hope that you have been enjoying this. We get a kick out of this stuff. And I just want to remind the audience that while some of these things get pretty harsh critiques from us, this is from a place of love of the game. So, uh, Brandis, where can people find you on the internet? I uh, have my own blog, uh, brandisstoddard.com. I also write for tribality.com. And you can find me on Twitter at brandisstoddard. And I have a Patreon that is... Brenda Stoddard. Excellent. And I am Sam Dillon, and you can find me on D&D Brief, which is a Twitch-streamed game every other Sunday on the Don't Split the Podcast Network. You can also reach me at dndbrief at gmail.com. That's D-N-D-E-B-R-I-E-F at gmail.com. You can actually send Edition Wars question to that email as well if you'd like. You can also find me on rpgmusings.com and on Twitter at dmsamuelnospace. Alright, and I think that will end up this episode. Thank you for listening. Bye, everybody. Look, mate. Three generations ago, my ancestors forged the Great Blade Skull Splitter. With it, They won the Goblin Wars, the Hobgoblin Wars, the Orc Wars, the Demon Wars, the Elf Wars, and the Gelatinous Cube Wars. That one doesn't even make sense because they don't have skulls. Now, all these years later, the legend of the Great Skull Splitter grows. Offering dice to help you create your own legends, Skull Splitter Dice makes the highest quality dice beautiful dice of both plastic and metal. Want to roll bones that look like bones? or just something with enough heft to split the skulls of your enemies, Skull Splitter Dice has that and more. Check them out now at SkullSplitterDice.com slash Tomeshow and use the coupon code Tomeshow with all little letters and get 15% off. Now get out there, split some skulls, and build some legends. Legends.